Yo. Bro, we fucking did it. <laughs> did you see my tweet? Yeah, man. Imagine fucking Instagram goes down. I was just, I was like refreshing it and it kept saying network error. I was like, no That's way. <laughs> I had to blow the dust off the Twitter account. What'd you say? I had to blow the dust off the Twitter account. I had to try and dig it up. I don't use Twitter. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 How you doing, such, man? Such slaves to the platform that we can't do anything. Like if, if Instagram's down, I just lose all my communication with everybody I'm talking to. Yeah, innit? I uh I saw this thing like the other day talking about a cyber pandemic. And it was sort of saying how if like I forget exactly what they're on about, but it was sort of saying if there was some virus or some shit on the internet, could just wipe out the internet, how reliant we'd be. And they were sort yeah. of talking about how you know Instagram went down about a month ago, didn't it? And I said it's done it again. I'm like, oh shit, are they are they predicting something. And I mean, uh, I know a lot of people who get their Instagram deleted and they have like you know serious business deals going on in their dms and then they just are cut off and they can't even get in touch with the people that they were supposed to be doing business with and shit and yeah. like, well i was thinking idea. there when it went down i was like oh, he's gonna think i'm a fucking you know i've missed the deadline i've dropped the ball <laughs> nah i knew right away i'm like oh this is my fault because i should have got his fucking email in advance yeah it's all good we did it how you doing there man you good Excellent. Yeah, just chilling. About to go do that uh, Cool Kicks channel uh, after this. Okay. Cool Kicks. You seen right. that? The sneaker shop and shit? Nah. I don't... What is in when they go and they take a wrapper around, they buy like shoes? Yeah, not the uh, not the complex version. It's just like a store in uh, in LA on Melrose where they just do vlogs like rappers shopping and all that kind of shit. And I need shoes like desperately. So I'm pretty excited to do it. Yeah, I think I've seen it. And they've got more like plastic wrapped and stuff, haven't they? Yeah, basically that kind of shit. Yeah. That shit's crazy. It's so different. Like in the UK, I don't <laughs> I don't think you get anything like that. You'd never get some shop that has like a YouTube channel. I can't think maybe, maybe in like have you you've been to the UK much? Yeah, a bunch of times. Yeah, I guess you would have probably went to like the Supreme store in London and stuff like that. Yeah, because most of the time I spent there is in London and shit. But then I've been to like Bristol and Brighton and shit. So I know yeah. a little bit more about uh, the av- like surprised. what the average city in the UK is like. It always cracks me up when like an American says a town that's not London because it's just like hearing it from <laughs> an American. It's always there was a guy the other day. He's like a big YouTuber. And he said Leicester. And I was like, how the fuck does he know Leicester? It's like some shithole in the UK. And I'm like, how the fuck? <laughs> yeah, because... I have a friend from uh, Warrington, and whenever I mention that, people lose their fucking mind that I've even yeah, heard yeah. of Warrington. Yeah, that's mad. I um. Yeah. So basically, when you messaged me, I was like, I was like, oh shit, because I I thought about doing a BMX video, and people would kind of ask me to, but I thought BMX was massive, so I was a bit like, yeah, do I want to do it because it's so big? Like, is it is it going to be that interesting? But then you said it's kind of not as popping anymore. Yeah, I mean. It's definitely been like a roller coaster in terms of popularity over the years. But when you think about it, like everybody kind of like considers rollerblading to be like the extreme sport that died. And then skateboarding is the extreme sport that thrived and did extremely well. And BMX has like always kind of been caught in the middle. Like I think one of the like overwhelming reasons is because it's like it became if you wanted to do some like really technical uh stuff and wanted to be cool and like you know have like a a cool hip image about it skateboarding just became like the thing Mm. 
And then on the other hand, if you wanted to do some really extreme shit, I felt like as soon as they started doing backflips on motorcycles over dirt jumps, that that just became so much more extreme. And like BMX became so yeah. technical looking in comparison that the, the percentage of the audience that just wanted to see some wild shit kind of became like the nitro circus audience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When I was doing, cause I started doing a bit of research and I was sort of thinking, yeah, what is the main reasons? And that was one of the ones that come up a lot. People were saying it's kind of like, I hate, I'm not trying to say this, but they were saying it's kind of like to the average Joe, a lesser version of like motocross. Cause you see, as you say, you see a guy do a freaking, I don't know, double backflip across however many meters. And then you yeah. see a guy to do some technical grinds. It's not the kind, they're so similar that you no. kind of think they're the same as an average person, but right. then they're not. But the so, dude on the motorcycle is yeah. going three times higher in the air, way faster. And like mm. the average, like, you know, person in their thirties, I think they see a motorcycle and they're like, that's some crazy grown man shit. That's also insanely yeah. dangerous in comparison to BMX, which is pretty dangerous, but it's like, you know, you don't have this fucking 300 pound thing that's going to fall on you if you fuck up, you know? Yeah, that's it. And I think parkour had a very similar thing with uh, when free running become a bit more popular because people in the early days, it was like fast A to B, you know, like you go from here to there really quickly, really efficiently, and people loved it. And then the flips started popping and people were doing like these big front flips and then parkour kind of now looks a bit shit in comparison because it's kind mm. of like, you're doing none of the technique, you're doing none of the like fancy looking stuff. So there's always a bit of a, a beef between parkour and free running because of that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like, I mean, it just feels like there's like kind of only one, only room for like one action sport to really like dominate that cool world, mm. you know, and skateboarding just like, I think through like having a better industry was like a big factor. And then I think the fact that you know, a skateboard is a lot more affordable. It's a lot more, uh, you know, you could go walk around town with a skateboard under your arm and that's yeah. just kind of normal. But if you walk around town with a bike or if you go ride around town, you need a lock, you know, you can't, uh, you can't bring your bike into the movie theater or the mall or whatever, you know, it's just like kind of more, and it's more expensive. It's more of like a big clunky device from a lot of people's perspectives. Like it is a lot better mm -hmm. as a mode of transportation than a skateboard. But I feel like that is kind of like a minor concern for the average person these days because they're probably the, just kind of rolling around to the store type shit or, or mm. going to the skate park and everything like that. You know, how much how much is a BMX and then how much is it to maintain it? Well, so that's one of the better things about BMX compared to when I was a young guy is that when I was a kid, you you basically had two options of buying a really shitty complete bike because all the complete bikes were shit. And that would maybe cost you around $300 or you could buy a custom bike where you mm -hmm. buy all the different parts and everything, put it together. That would always have cost you like at least a thousand dollars or probably more than 1500. Whereas mm -hmm. like now though, the, the complete bikes, <clears throat> that was something that happened around 2007 or so is that basically the, the companies in BMX figured out how to make way better complete bikes through the factories overseas and and mm. were able to like offer like pretty decent bikes at like the $300 price point and that that like mm. helped BMX grow a lot in the short term because all of a sudden you had a lot more kids who were able to buy a decent quality bike for really cheap but then it also kind of fucked up the the market for aftermarket parts because 
it's kind of harder to convince somebody to buy a $300 frame or a, you know, a $300 mm. set of wheels when you could buy a whole bike that's pretty decent for 300 bucks and then just replace stuff as it breaks, you know? And, but yeah. that's what the real, that was a huge factor in, in BMX is. So I started my BMX blog in 2006 and that was kind of like the, the time period where everything was kind of going from the magazines and the DVDs to okay, now everything's going to be on YouTube and Vimeo. And this is where all these videos are going to go. So you, you have this like big shift in the media. And then at the same time, you had all these complete bikes coming out, but then the industry compensated for the big demand and complete bikes by making way too many of them. So within a year or two of the industry of all these different companies making shitloads of complete bikes, you had tons of companies, even really big companies who kind of couldn't sell off their existing stock because they, everybody hmm. had just overproduced so much. And that's kind of like, when, all when was this 2006? Huh? 2000. Yeah. So I started my site in 2006 and I would identify this complete bike thing as kind of happening around like 2007, 2008. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was, I found this image on, uh, it was like on Reddit and some guy kind of broke down the phases of, uh, I was trying to flick it up while she was sort of saying that. And he sort of broke down the phases. So he was saying in 2005, there was a thing called like Backyard Jams. There was Metro Jam and there was a, a DVD called Voices. And that was apparently quite that big was, around In the there. UK, that, that was the a massive part of the scene was that those two things. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was the UK, was it? Yeah. Voices was basically like <clears> the <throat> most, the, kind of like the first slash the most important like UK street DVD that had like, really cool filming really good music and i feel like it like inspired the fuck out of people in the uk because it was the first mm -hmm. uh bmx dvd that made people in the uk realize like oh our street riding scene is basically just as dope as all the shit that's going on in new york city yeah. and la so where where was it like who would you say well i've got so many questions so say like when would you say is the golden era if we start with that and then i can work out from there I mean, I feel like a lot of people would kind of point to like the late 90s, early 2000s when you had like the X Games making BMX huge. That was really like pushing it to be a lot bigger. You know, you've got Dave Mira out here. He's a big star. And then you've got uh, but then around that time, you also had like a really thriving, like smaller contest circuit. You had bigger brands and, and, and uh, you know, corporate companies putting money into the sport and everything. And then I feel like that kind of started to cool off a little bit towards like the early 2000s. I remember that like, for example, uh, in 2006 or 2007, when I was first starting getting my website going, that Levi's dipped in and they did a BMX team. They did a lot of promotion online. They did a full DVD and everything. And, and it stood out a lot because at that point, 2007 or whatever, when Levi's was making a push, it was like a lot of the corporate money had already left BMX. You were already seeing a lot of the, the shoe sponsors kind of leave because they realized that they got more of a bang for their buck from uh, skateboarding. But then around that time, um, as, like Levi's, they, they did the program for maybe a year, maybe like two years at most. And then they were just gone. And I felt like that was one of the last like big corporate companies that you saw really make a play for BMX. And around that same time, mm. Nike did as well. And, and when Nike went hard, pushing in bmx they kind of pushed a lot of the smaller shoe companies out of the way fast forward five six years nike basically leaves bmx as well and kind of like leaves oh. the whole team hanging and so everything they, so. so they've almost they've probably taken such a big part of the market 
and then all the smaller brands did they suffer in that bit did did some of the smaller brands like shut yeah. down because nike took the market yeah you saw brands like low tech and orchid who were like the independent bmx shoe brands that when bmx was at its height they popped up and started to actually build pretty decent businesses but then you know a company like nike sees that they don't like the oh. sounds of that so they sort of like jump in the market mm. and you know it's easy to overwhelm these kind of small companies because mm. they were able to easily come in the game and sort of pick up a lot of the big pros and uh you know, pay them more than what BMX companies could pay them. And also competing on technology. I mean, Nike's product is just going to be way better. Um, so yeah, you, that, that was an interesting factor, seeing these corporate brands kind of come into BMX and then real realize that they could get more for their buck from skateboarding or other things, even like, you know, take a company like monster. I mean, monster has been pretty good about supporting BMX all these years and they definitely don't seem like they're leaving or anything. But at a certain point, Monster realized that they could sponsor music festivals and, and mm. rappers and artists and, and YouTubers. And like, there's just so many more lanes now for a corporate company to use. I think that like when it comes to athletic shit, though, skateboarding is just seen as so influential and so easy for them to comprehend and digest. And uh, I mean, I know I'm just talking in, in circles here, but I think another big That's part of it is the fact that when you look at skateboarding, there's a huge emphasis put on the health of the overall industry. And it seems like there's a lot of people in skateboarding who really care about that. And so for example, it's very, very difficult for you to buy skateboards from any of the big uh, skateboard manufacturers online because they, they want to emphasize the sales chain. They want the local skate shop to be a place where you can get their boards. And it's kind mm. of agreed upon that they don't sell direct to customers. BMX from very early on on the internet there was this massive mail order called dan's comp and dan's comp like through massive discounting through uh ordering like basically monopolizing certain parts or bikes that people would really want they would order like everything do do kind of shady shit to like get the the vast majority of the product and that really like put a ton of pressure on the local bike shops and that mm. in time kind of like fucked up a lot of local scenes because all of a sudden you have I wonder why the, I wonder why the big skate manufacturers because that's quite like um that's very like forward thinking that's not something you would think they would think of I wonder why they do that I wonder why they, they know just knew that. that you know you need these like local hubs for your sport to exist from you know and if you yeah. have a you know if you if you have a dope bike shop in London or in New York it's just going to attract young kids who want to get into it. And it's going to make it seem, you know, more attainable versus the mail order thing. Usually mm. it's less expensive and everything, but it just doesn't do anything to create a community, you know? Yeah. It was, I mean, that's parkour's always had this issue. I'll, I'll keep relating it back to parkour because it's what I know, but it's always had the issue that you will never get a parkour clothing shop. Like what's that? <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like that's a clothing shop and you've got H and M you've got all these other places. So you're never going to have that. And because of that, and because like parkour gyms are always seen as like a place where beginners go, there's never right. really a hub for it. And so I think, yeah, with BMX, skateboarding, the idea of having a hub, these shops, they probably do help. I'd imagine on some shit. Are you still open, by the way? Because I know you had a place that closed, right? No, yeah, but we uh, we shut down basically. We got really, really lucky. We shut down for unrelated reasons in February of 2020, like immediately before the pandemic hit. And hmm. for probably six months before that, I had been trying to shut the shop down, but we had to kind of ride out our lease. 
And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really anxious to do another store again, to be honest, because I kind of feel like given that uh, we do pretty well for ourselves with no jumper and everything, it's like to, to run like a cool BMX shop almost feels like a, a nonprofit type venture yeah, from my yeah. perspective, because I mean, we make so much money doing other stuff that like, you know, even if the bike shop were to do incredibly well, it would be a rounding error to us. So yeah. basically, it's more of a I, culture I, thing, isn't it? Because I, I, like, I, I just when think, I think it's of... important. Yeah. And I want to I want to be the one to like, that's a big part of what I want to do with the position that I'm in now is I want to be able to kind of do things that put BMX on a bigger and bigger stage, you know, that a lot a lot of yeah. these companies, that's kind of the problem in BMX, a lot of them really just did not build robust businesses at all. So as a result, the the they just are, are a little too concerned with penny pinching in the short term and stuff like not supporting mm. the supply chain and just sort of allowing mail orders to dominate everything. And BMX was terrible in the long run for the, for the health of the sport, you know, even though it, it was probably pretty uh, inevitable, you know? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, it's just, I've always associated, especially with on, like on some shit, it was kind of like, you guys must have so many memories from that place. Cause of like, I was, a, I was a massive little peep fan. And so when he was there and like, you know, it's obviously quite touching when you guys have referred to it and like you see the footage of you lot talking about him and when he was there. And it's like all those memories of all those iconic rappers, the Ken Dahmer events, all that shit. They're like culturally significant. You, yeah, you think, like I, when you think of X, when you think of XX and Tasha, you always think his first interview at No Jumper. And it's like, that's iconic, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm just a big believer in the idea that you need like local hubs and that there's a lot of value in being that. Like, I, I realized that when we opened the bike shop, I think in 2013 or 2014, like as soon as we opened, like I, I, I sort of realized like, oh, we're like the most relevant bike shop in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. which is kind of a significant thing. Like this is a good thing for us to have the lead on because as soon as we opened, there started to be other bike shops that started to try to take market share from us. And I realized how much value there was in us sort of being first and being the hub for that. And, you know, even if it's not a, a huge world, like with the Kendama stuff, Kendama is amazing because it's so easy. Like we would have BMX mm -hmm. people meeting up at the store, but to have a Kendama jam, I mean, you, you literally just let all the Kendama dudes come hang out and they were able to have a great time. And yeah, I think there's a lot, because at the end of the day, you end up thinking like, well, what the fuck does my brand really represent? And for mm. us having like communities of people who are excited to come to the shop to engage with the shit they're excited about, all of a sudden, then your brand means something, you know, and, and I've seen what it's like over the past two years of not having the shop. And I'm proud of the fact that we like didn't lose our relevance or that we're able to still do well. And I feel like we're actually putting out way more content now and being able to do way more in that regard. But I, I am anxious to open another store just because I kind of miss being that that hub, you know. What was it like? I know this is more about you, but I find this interesting. But like, what was it um, that kind of inspired that idea of like building cultures rather than just simply you wanted to interview rappers or you wanted to sell bikes? It was like such an emphasis on the culture side. What, what kind of prompted that? Is that something that's always interesting to you? Well, I mean, it was like we were doing the bike shop thing and then all of a sudden I'm interviewing rappers in the back. And then it just kind of became like because my whole time that I was obsessed with BMX, I always would also be listening to rap and kind of wondering in the back of my head why BMX was never able to like insert itself into the conversation of cool shit that was going on in the culture. You know, you would see 
skateboarders in their skateboarding DVDs with actors and models and, you know, rappers and people would be acknowledging their sport and stuff. And I'd always kind of just wish that I had like a way to let people in a more mainstream light understand how cool my subculture was, you know? Mm. And in a big part, that's kind of like why I started interviewing rappers was because I just basically wanted to get rappers to come through, have conversations with me and sort of through being in the shop and everything, realized that we were doing some cool shit. And then it pretty quickly became that like, oh no, interviewing the rappers is the actual <laughs> business. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that, that was kind of a surprise. <laughs> but it, I do feel like you guys kept that, you know, it never became, it was never like, oh, you've quit BMX. It was always a big part of it. So it's been, you know, I feel like you kept true to it, but you would yeah. obviously, you know, when you see the numbers coming and like the more money and also just like the experience of talking to these people, obviously you're going to be more interested in that. I think that's, it's kind of obvious that it would go that way. Yeah. And I, I, before I started doing a jumper, I was interviewing all these BMX pros. I had this, uh, channel called the come up bmx that i was uploading mm -hmm. all these podcasts to and it was like i did maybe a hundred of them and i think by the time i got done the 100 i was like really struggling to find people to interview that made sense because bmx is kind of a smaller world and they just didn't seem like there was that like i already got it you know i've just been doing it for mm. so long and in comparison like the doing doing interviews with rappers it's like every rapper is like a new puzzle to figure out of yeah, like yeah. where they're from who they get along with how they got into this what their whole deal is you know and it's like that just seems so much more open-ended not to mention like interviewing you know comedians and youtubers and porn stars and all these different types of people that was like it, it just became so obvious to me that this was like way more interesting to me and also around mm. that time i i was having huge success with doing bmx vlogs on my channel even just iphone vlogs like I, we had a video get 3 million views in like a month. And that was the first time that my YouTube check was like 15 grand or something, which I had been, I'd been trying to make 10 grand on YouTube for years, like just fighting every day, trying to get the YouTube number up. And then I yeah. finally had a couple of videos go viral. And uh, basically like the next month was when I decided I can't do this anymore. I got to just focus on no jumper. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I've had the same thing with the parkour, man. Cause that was like, when I started, it was just parkour. It was like top 10 this, top 10 girls that do parkour, top 10. And then I got to a point, I was like, how, how many fucking times can I talk about parkour? And then I started like pushing into just doing different, different uh, like kind of extreme sports is probably where I end up staying. But I, I, even that, I don't like the idea of being stuck to it because I think like you, the thing I'm interested in is kind of the people and their story and people are so interesting. Like you had, you had the Hoff twins on the other day. And that was like, those guys, it's like, I, for me, I would love to have the ability to make a video on those guys. But my channel went in that place where I'm seen right. as that. But it's like, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the thing that I think you, what you've been able to do is just sort of explore anything you find interesting. And right. people rate what you do enough that they go, ah, oh, you know, if it's come from Adam to Enter, it's going to be good. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, because I, I scrolled through your uploads in order and like saw kind of the way that your channel's like transformed and I definitely like related to it. I was like, oh, I see. Like he started this out to mostly just focus on parkour. But at a certain point, you're you're taking things that are super obvious to you and trying to like format it so that it'll be interesting to a random person. And it's like it's obviously just way more interesting at a certain point to just go learn something new like that. Yeah. That's why I always there's always a part of me that wishes I could just have a channel like yours where I could just take a week, learn as much as I can about a subject or whatever, and make a video about it. And it's like, mm. 
I love that. Like I've done it, but it's like, I don't feel like my life really like allows me enough time to do it, but that, like, mm. I don't know, like using your YouTube channel as basically a way to just learn about shit and document it <laughs> yeah, yeah. to me, that's like the ultimate thing. Cause I just want to learn about shit. You know, it's pro professionalizing uh, YouTube rabbit holes is basically what I do. Just fucking. And that's yeah. That cause that's 100% why I started doing interviews was because I just, would find myself staying up till eight in the morning just learning about shit and just researching stuff and i was just like dude i gotta yes. find a way to like channel this into something positive that's fucking crazy i i'm gonna ask you a bit more about like the bmx history i i kind of just want to chat about your your story but i know you only got a certain amount of time but we'll yeah, stay in touch cool. man and i'll, I'll probably have to yeah yeah for sure man I'm, I'm a big fan of what you're doing i appreciate that i mean yeah i'm still like still figuring it out you have some months where like shit's popping and you're like oh yeah this is i'll be a million in no time and then you have a month where you're like everything's flopping you're like, oh, shit <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That, yeah all right so yeah i basically put a little timeline of what i feel are the relevant points in the history of bmx so this is kind of like this isn't from the beginning because i'm going to look into that separately i think that's quite well documented but in terms of like street and freestyle bmx i got sort of like 1996 mid 90s the technology changed so is this is something that i don't i don't know exactly what it is but it, when i was like looking into it people were saying the bikes went from being kind of shit early 90s maybe late 80s to like 96 around about then yeah. they become better do yeah. you know what that so, was so about that like you know because i started riding bmx in 97 or so and i would go on these bmx forums and there's a guy named George French, who's uh, one of the most innovative guys in terms of like making BMX products better over the years. And he would have these horror stories about what it was like in the early 90s or the 80s, uh, how guys would be going through wheels constantly, just destroying everything, breaking everything. And it's when you really read about it, it's almost uh, mind blowing that that the bikes were able to that, that people cared about riding bikes so much that they were willing to deal with destroying like hundreds of dollars worth of bike parts on such a consistent basis but yeah around the late 90s it became like you know like the wheels got a lot that's really the era of the heavy bikes people started well i mean bikes were heavy before that but then they started to make bikes like just stronger like where your bike was still heavy but it wouldn't break was kind of like the late 90s era and then okay. the early 2000s era was when they started to figure out how to make everything lighter Whereas like now a BMX bike might be 22 pounds, 23, 24 pounds. And people don't even really care that much. Like not, I, I very rarely hear anybody having a conversation about how to make your bike lighter. But in the early 2000s, that was like the whole conversation. Like everybody was obsessed with it. People were trying to figure out if they could use titanium spokes and, you know, drilling holes in the frames to make, you know, you save a couple ounces and, oh, we're going to make our tires. So it's proper out like MacGyver, like you were doing up your bike to make it good for you people were drilling holes in their frames to basically like see just to see if it would if it would work like if it would break automatically you know and uh but that was at the same time a really really good era because somebody like me i had horrible lower back issues like my whole time riding bmx and a ton of other people would say the same thing in bmx it's mm. like lower back just terrible because you're just lifting this tiny heavy ass bike and then once the bikes got lighter, you started to see like younger kids be able to do better because they weren't necessarily as strong. It became a lot less mm. of an old man's game where at a certain point in the late 90s and stuff, uh, the average BMX pro might have been 
25, 26, 27 type shit. Cause you kind of needed oh. to be like a big, strong guy to do it. And then you started to see young kids be able to be really good. And that started to like really change shit in the early two thousands as a result of the lighter bikes and, and, and just the oh. bikes not breaking in general. So that's, that's definitely true that the tech, like when you look at BMX kind of having like an, like I look at the two thousands as being like, basically a, a golden era i know people like worship the 90s but i personally think that like 2000 to 2010 that was a very glorious era in bmx because the bikes got lighter everybody was getting so much better people during that era is when people really figured out like oh there's there's not like five tricks you can do on a rail there's like hundreds of tricks that you can do on a rail you know who were some of the guys to progress that oh was man. there like I mean, a there... rodney mullen you know what i mean was there a guy who figured it there was a guy named Jim Selinski who was like super early being an innovator of like grinding on your pedals and your crank arms and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, in, in the late two thousands, you had a guy named Edwin De La Rosa, who's basically like a 16 year old black kid from Brooklyn who came on the scene and just was doing everything. So clean, so cool. Just doing like all this new stylish shit, doing hard three sixties out of grinds. He was the first one to do that. Like the animal movement there's a company called animal and their dvds mm. uh or vhs tapes for the first one at least were so ridiculously progressive you had uh, one called there was can a guy i eat on... right huh is there one called can i eat yeah that, that was yeah. basically the the super progressive one that like blew everybody's minds even though it was technically the second video like there was a guy named uh, lino gonzalez who blew everybody's minds out of boston because he was doing feebles on rails where like you have to actually keep your wheel on the rail, which we kind of didn't realize that people could do stuff like that. Like that era, and, that, and that's just a handful of people, but that era was just so absurdly progressive. And, and the media was really at a great point, like new VHS tapes or DVDs every fucking week, every couple of months, every mm. month, the magazines, there's a bunch of magazines thriving. The corporate companies were still putting money into BMX. And uh, yeah, that, that, that was an epic era. It must, it must have been mad because obviously you started in 97, so you were seeing the whole shit change. Yeah. And because, yeah, like the, the generation before me in parkour, they, they saw it all go from like people hopping over rails to like sending it across like roof gaps and shit. So it must have been wild for you to see it firsthand. Yeah, no, it, it was like when I look back at why I became so obsessed with, you know, hip hop, BMX, et cetera, it's like I grew up in like, a really amazing era for both and you know mm. but i'm sure that a lot of bmx kids right now would look at the 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 game and look at the videos that are coming out and the truth is is that there's still tons of riders who are ridiculously progressive going hard these dudes are passionate as fuck the industry is smaller but i'm sure that those kids look at the bmx game right now and i'm sure that they feel like this is incredible. Like this is the greatest shit on earth. Uh, mm. So, you know, it, it's always hard to separate what's just your perspective because you were 16 going through it versus yeah, yeah, was it really that crazy? But I think objectively I can look at that era. Like there's so many amazing pros now, but a lot of what they're doing kind of comes down to being like extremely consistent, technical, putting tricks together in crazy ways, which is amazing and awesome. But that era of like the early 2000s, especially, it was like all this shit was being invented. Like people were mm. figuring out 
what worked on a bike and that for yeah. any subculture i think that that is like an amazing era like once once people kind of realize what all the tricks are and how they should be done and everything and then it kind of becomes an issue of just putting stuff together in more more and more technical ways like that's cool but the the part of bmx where everybody was just figuring shit out was the unreal. discovery phase isn't it yeah it's the same for uh is weirdly i don't know if you're a chess fan but it's the same for chess so chess had I don't know if you know much about it, but it was like there was this geezer, I forget his fucking name, but he was like the best in the world. And he yeah. hates chess now because he's like, chess is so well understood. We all know what's happening. There's no there's no surprise element. And that's probably what you're talking about with BMX there. Yeah, like I don't I don't play chess, but I play poker. And I also like got into playing poker online during the era where people were kind of just figuring shit out. And now poker, mm. the game has been solved. Like mathematically, yeah, like that's there's it. a they can make a computer that can beat the best pros. So at the end of the day, it's just not the same. Like people it's know dumb. what works. They know what you're supposed to do. And, mm -hmm. and to figure out a tricky situation of like, oh, this guy check raised me on the river. It's not like, I think you should do this. It's like, no, we're going to put this into the computer and we're going to figure out exactly what you're supposed to do, which kind of mm -hmm. changes everything. Cause like, that's a metaphor I've thought of in my head, but never really bothered to say to anybody is that like BMX at some point it was kind of solved. Like yeah, this is really how good way works. The, these are the tricks you can do out of a rail and, and people keep innovating upon that, but it's mostly like innovations that you could have, you could see them coming because it's the, the the game sort of progresses in an intelligent way. You say that though. I've heard um, there was a commentator watching Ryan Williams, and they were like bewildered by what he was doing. Like the way they were talking about it, they were like, "Yeah, this. I don't even know what we'd call this trick." Was is he different in any way? Well, yeah, that is different because that's one thing that's weird about BMX is that there's like the street riders and there's the yeah, park yeah. riders, and over time, like when I was young the world sort of like overlapped a lot. Like you'd have dudes who rode street to the skate park and then they left the skate park and they went and grinded some rails. And that was, it was just kind of like normal to do both. Obviously plenty of people specialized in one over the other, but they would ride dirt jumps. They would do flatland tricks, mm -hmm. et cetera. Now you have somebody like Ryan Williams, who ironically I actually ran into when I was out riding street a couple of weeks ago, but yeah. what he's doing with the rubber landings and the nitro circus and doing the, the triple backflip tail whip type stuff. I mean, that is just so far away from the street side of things. Whereas, and then on the same token, the street riders, they ride, you know, grimy ass bikes in comparison. Mm. They ride heavy ass bikes in comparison. The bikes are so completely different, but I would agree that when I watch Ryan Williams ride, it's almost impossible for me to tell you what trick he's doing because it is so technical, but it, yeah, it's become such a different world. But, but again, like a pretty popular style of bmx that even me somebody doing it my whole life it's a little bit foreign to me because it's so technical yeah it's weird thing because yeah it's it's almost like they are quite different disciplines and from the outside i just see it as bmx but very clearly someone who does street has got a different focus than someone who's doing like yeah mega ramp stuff and, yeah and i i could send you good examples of it but like even if you were to see a group of bmx street riders walking down the street and a group of park riders you you would not even think they had anything in common like the park dudes they they wear super <laughs> long shirts they got super tight jeans they cut the shirts so that there's these big gaping armholes like 
they all wear helmets their bikes have brakes a lot of times they they love like you know shiny fucking translucent looking <laughs> like purple bikes whereas like the average street rider you'd be much more likely to see them on like an all-black bike or like a yeah, more simple like cult- color do they listen to different music and shit is it like they're culturally quite different hell yeah the, the fucking park <laughs> riders i would assume that they're listening all fucking bring me the horizon or some shit whereas <laughs> The fucking BMX, the street riders are more, I would say, rap, you know, maybe yeah, hardcore, yeah. punk, that type of thing. Yeah. That's so interesting. Like, that's something I, no one would ever know other than people in that scene. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I could send you like video links to like, like one of my favorite BMX riders and a good friend of mine is this kid, Brandon Began, that we sponsor. And I mm. mean, he, he's so amazing, so stylish. Everything he does is so cool. I've been, I've been riding with him since he was like 17, 18, and he's like, 28 now i think 30 and then i could go watch a ryan williams section comparison and it's i mean it's, it's hard to fathom that this is the same sport yeah but, yeah I mean, it's 20 inch wheels but everything else is different realistically that was one of the other things that i read about when they were talking about potentially a decline in the sport was that um skateboarding has always like i don't know if it's technically technically true but basically you couldn't you would have racing BMX, you would have obviously street BMX and then this mega ramp. It was kind of hard to know which one was like the most popular. And so yeah. it was hard to know what culture kind of like, because I would say, I might be wrong here, but I'd say like street skateboarding has always been the most popular. So nah, just saying that aloud, it isn't even true because Tony Hawk well, was obviously not. But I think it's been true for a while, you know, like mm. I think that like over time, like the vert ramps just became like way too dangerous seeming in comparison to like skating a curb, you know? But yeah, I mean, skateboarding is has more of like a coherent core to it where like, you know, you have dudes ride bowls and pools and all this kind of stuff, but that they still are on the same type of skateboard as a guy who grinds rails all day. Whereas Ryan Williams's bike feels and looks like so completely different than a street rider's bike that Mm. it's kind of. It, it is like a massive uh, i think yeah yeah i've just i thought maybe of a like a similarity is kind of like it's skateboarding all the different ones like you know obviously street vert, blah, blah blah they're similar enough but then you'd have longboarding which is way out over here and then yeah. maybe bmxing is more like all the different disciplines are more akin to skateboarding versus longboarding than and, skateboarding and, and even that's just that's just 20 inch wheels because around 2008 2009 fixed gear became huge and that kind of threatened to take away some of bmx's thunder in terms of freestyle even though i feel like it really like fizzled out over the course of a couple years and it didn't really become what we were Mm. all sort of nervous about it becoming but then you could look at like the mountain bike stuff the trial stuff all that stuff of uh danny mackaskill and shit like that i mean Mm. that's kind of one thing that made me realize that BMX had an image problem was when Danny Macaskill started to come out on a mountain bike. He's doing all this stuff that admittedly is very hard. He's bouncing around on his back wheel, doing all this shit. But then at the same time, I'm like, why is this getting 10 million views? Mm. And like Garrett Reynolds is the greatest BMX rider and maybe like greatest bicyclist living. Every video party puts out blows people's minds, but it's so technical and hard to, fathom like if you don't ride fiending, bmx right? fiending huh? what was was it called fiending fiend, fiend is his company yeah. and fiending was one of their biggest videos yeah but you know it, it was just the kind of thing where it's like when he's doing a you know his banger in a recent video was a 180 bar spin to backwards crooked grind to indian 180 bar spin out to manual to switch 180 on a real handrail which 
mind blowing. But also, yeah. like, how could I ever expect anyone to understand that trick? Yeah, you, you saying know? that was a different language. I thought you were talking French there. I think that's his <laughs> last trick in fiending. Yeah. Yeah, I'm have to check that. Yeah, so I think that is that is arguably part of it as well as the image problem there. Um, the mm. other thing, I've got a couple more questions based on the timeline, but just on yeah. that though. Um, but the other thing I think as well is like. I think BMX and had this massive, so when the 2000s and all that, and it's really like fucking popping, I remember having a BMX and I, I got it with the spokes. I literally asked them to get it uh, with the cables inside. So if the, I must've been fucking eight years old and I'm talking about, I'm going to do tail whips. Obviously right. I never did anything like that ever. I was just riding it around in the street, like with my right. friends. And so what, what I think happened was people started realizing me as a little kid, don't need a fucking BMX. I need a mountain bike because I'm mm. going to get more use out of a mountain bike. It's more efficient to ride. You know what I mean? And so yeah, I think people in that A lot of people probably, figure that out at some point, yeah. Yeah, I think we all had we all had BMXs because they were cool, and then we realized they're actually kind of not that useful for just riding around how we're going to... Yeah, when the fixed gears came out, it was like, you know, certain BMX companies started to make fixed gears, and they would do really well because, you know, the fixed gear community looked at the BMX community as being more big and official. So they kind of wanted to be accepted in that world. So they would, you know, they would be happy to buy bike parts from BMX companies. And they would get a lot of blowback from the BMX community. But at the end of the day, like, there's a lot of people like, you know, like, why would a why would a grown woman who doesn't have interest in doing tricks doesn't have to be a woman either a man why like why would they want a bmx bike like yeah, yeah. I, I would have people come up to me and be like how can i get a bike like that and i would look at them and they'd be like a grown man and i'd just why be thinking the fuck like, do you want this why the know? fuck would you want one of these things <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. you know okay this is a big part too that i think is a is crucial to understand is that because bmx has a smaller overall industry smaller number of people who are purchasing stuff and then also the fact that skateboards, skateboarding community sells a ton of shit to people who are not skateboarders, like, you know, mm. shoes, thrasher shirts, even people who just want skateboards, et cetera. Like the, the skateboarding mm. industry, like those skaters that they pay as pros are valuable to them beyond just the, uh, you know, the, the, the hardcore skater market. Like I'm pretty mm. sure that if, I'm pretty sure that if skating and BMX were side by side in terms of like the hardcore adherence that the size difference wouldn't be that big but it's the fact that that skateboarding Order. culture transcends to so much more shit that's a huge deal but then because you have the corporate companies supporting skateboarding more than bmx then you would have you know i remember there was a guy named uh vic ayala who i was talking about edwin de la rosa earlier he was basically like his best friend vic ayala and he mm. was a god like absolutely doing the craziest shit on the biggest rails and everything and then at one point, uh, he just bailed out and he became a construction worker. And huh. it wasn't like he had a catastrophic injury or anything. I think that he he grew up relatively poor and he realized that if he kept riding BMX as a pro, that he was going to keep making, you know, two grand a month or something. And that he wasn't really like building anything that was going to support him. In mm. comparison, I mean, the skateboarding industry has always been great about what and, and I say this with, you know, a little bit of understanding that probably a lot of skateboarders would disagree with me because obviously there's tons of amazing skateboarders that have basically been left without a paycheck over the years. But, you know, you have somebody like the cons, you have somebody like Rodney Mullen, et cetera, Day One Song. They're sort of like able to make a good living and for a long time in skateboarding as compared to BMX where, I mean, I, I don't, 
I don't know that you could find a, a person making a living from BMX who's over 35, like for being pro, you know, and really? the number of people, like I, I'm thinking of like a handful of people who are pro in the early thirties who are still able to make a pretty decent living. And when I said oh. decent living, it's like probably not even six figures. So it's not like a skateboarder could just make way more. And so as mm. a result, some of the greatest BMX riders of all time, basically kind of like bowed out on their pro career earlier than they probably could have because they really weren't like building a foundation for themselves in their life well that's the thing like if they left at 35 you've then got to enter the rest of your working career you've got to start your career at the age of 35 which you're on the back foot yeah and if you're making if you're making 10 grand a month as a pro skater then you know shit you that that seems pretty good like i'll i'll Mm -hmm. I'll take my time i'll take however many years i can to be pro before i go and become a construction worker or start a business or whatever BMX it's it's been so much harder for people to make a living even now with the shoe thing like I was talking to you about the Nike thing and then pushing brands out I mean the only companies that are paying BMX pros right now are Etnies still has a few people and uh, Vans has like a pretty good team and mm. I think that's it there might be a couple what would you like, guess tiny- someone on Vans is getting paid you would guess. I would say a thousand dollars or less per month, even though that is that's like a pretty corporate company. So maybe they would have some people that get paid more, but yeah, hmm. not not much more than that. Who's the most successful rider of the month? I saw a guy called um this this was someone that they were sort of taking the piss out of him a bit, but they were saying, fuck, I'm trying to find his name. It's like Mike Spinner or some shit. Hold on. Mike, Mike Spinner. Spinner yeah. He was on the Nike team, like he was like a real <coughs> park rider who his career only really lasted a couple of years because he was just like really corny and he kind of <laughs> fell off like relatively quickly but i mean he's another guy who was winning a lot of bmx contests for a little while he kind of got pushed out of the industry because people just didn't fuck with him but he started hmm. a fucking protein company he does nu- nutrition shit he's filthy rich off that shit like you know and, oh really and, yeah and i think a lot of people end up kind of like Another important like narrative to understand in BMX that I always find really interesting is like the, the the time when BMX seemed like it might really have another go in it was 2013, 2014, when the vloggers started blowing up. Like that was the yeah. era where I started getting shitloads of views. There's a dude, Adam LZ. He became the most popular BMX vlogger. But then meanwhile, the whole bmx industry really did not fuck with him and the hardcore pros and stuff they all thought he was super corny he was moving bikes i'm telling you that like he got sponsored and the company who made his signature bike it was by far the best selling signature bike that they had even though the bmx industry was really like not embracing this guy and Hmm. even with somebody like me like i fucking was doing really big numbers i guess comparatively for the bmx world I dip my toe into the rap world and start realizing that I could make so much more money doing that. And that the audience mm-hmm. was way bigger and it just kind of pushed me out of the BMX thing. Like that Adam LZ dude, he, now, if you look at his channel, it's all car shit. But if you go look at his most viewed videos from five, six years ago, it's all BMX shit. And I mean, he's somebody who the BMX industry being kind of uh, salty towards people that they view as corny, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of had like a, an, Bro, it's weird. Do you know? Do you know John culture? Hill, the skater John Hill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has the exact same thing, and it's like he's very, a very, very like, good comparison. Yeah. Yeah, they fucking hate him for some reason, and like I, I don't really follow skateboarding a lot. You know, I watch bits, but 
I watch him because he's really good for someone who's you know on the periphery. And sure then, I got food here. I'm just gonna run out and grab it real quick. Yeah, no worries, man. <laughs> yeah, um, basically, like I felt like there was just a, a real moment there where some of these like vloggers could help blow bmx up you know because mm. that's what bmx has always needed is like <clears throat> basically people who are able to model for consumers that you could be like a cool young dude and ride bmx and that that wasn't like a contradictory yeah. thing you know and uh yeah like multiple people that i thought really were going to be huge kind of ended up turning away from bmx at a certain point like and that that kind of mirrors what happened on a, a mainstream level before even that, because it, it felt like all the mainstream looks kind of by default just ended up going with skateboarding. Like, you know, skateboarding yeah. had Tony Hawk. Uh, skateboarding had Ryan Sheckler getting a TV show. Skateboarding had Bam and Jackass, which came from skateboarding. You know, like all these mm. things that basically made skateboarding look really good kind of like came like like came to skateboarding and then meanwhile didn't work out for bmx riders and like you know like uh like dave mira killed himself uh yeah five, I, six I, years. I, I saw you it, know? And, i didn't even and, know and he that. was kind of I, I mean he was kind of like out of bmx like he had, he had retired from competing in contests and everything at that point but i mean that still kind of like feels like a a black eye for bmx that like Tony Hawk is this like amazing elder statesman for, for skateboarding and travels the world, basically like preaching how amazing mm -hmm. skating is and everything. And then meanwhile, for BMX, mm -hmm. like a lot of our icons kind of got taken out one way or another, like, you know, somebody like, uh, like Mike, Mike Aitken is one of the greatest BMX riders of all time who got a horrible, horrible head injury, uh, when he was kind of in the prime of his career and that really derailed his career and he, he was never able to ride the same again. Oh. There was a kid named Mad Dog, AKA Brett Banasawicz, same thing. Like he was blown up on like a corporate level, tons of sponsors, horrible head injury, took him out the game. Uh, and I could say the same thing about Scotty Kramer is somebody who won a ton of BMX contests for years and years. And then at one point he started a YouTube channel all of a sudden, dude, he's getting a million views to upload. And then he's off like shooting something and he falls and he fucking he basically had to have his forehead removed because his brain was swelling so much. What the and that, fuck? That, yeah. And that really, you know, he, he can barely ride. It really put like a stop to his progression as a YouTuber and stuff, which I think at that point, like he was probably one of the biggest BMX uh, personalities, period, just because his channel was so popular. And there's just been a lot of bad luck associated with a lot of the most important names in BMX. It's tragic, man. Yeah, I, I think um, Dave Mirror's suicide, they apparently linked it to head trauma. They think that that might have been what triggered it or something like that. Yeah, and I mean, uh, to be honest, he was addicted to pain pills as well. Like, I, mm -hmm. I had a friend, uh, or I have a friend who was actually with him when he went to buy pain pills from this drug dealer and Dave Mira left five minutes before my friend and when my friend walked out to his car Dave Mira was sitting in his car with a bullet in his head so uh Jesus he actually Christ. like witnessed it but there I mean there's been other ones too man there's a legendary BMX rider named Kevin Robinson who was a huge deal to me growing up mm. killed himself they did a pretty good job keeping it uh kind of under wraps like I don't know if people really know that he killed himself but yeah, there's just been so many situations in which like really, really promising BMX pros slash influencers had their careers 
kind of cut short and and things just didn't really work out and then on the other hand with skateboarding you have you have rob deerdeck you have you know mm. there's so many people that made skateboarding look awesome to a to an audience and uh bmx didn't really like get much of that luck but i still feel like there's so much potential with youtube well, like there are a few big youtube like because i'm thinking um what's it ryan taylor i mean ryan taylor kind of went different direction with stuff but mm. it was ryan taylor there was i mean still anthony panza is that it panza's I mean, uh, a good one who's still doing it you know there, there, there's still a bunch of people billy perry has a, a good youtube presence for bmx stuff um but yeah it's definitely not like my whole thing is like you know he, he's a weird example but i remember when jake paul was coming out i was thinking if this guy rode bmx bmx would be huge again like yeah, just yeah. from his fan base just from his fan base it would be huge yeah. and you know maybe jake paul's not the guy these days but you know like there's just been so many like the world like if you're a cool high energy charismatic vlogger yeah. type dude and you're able to like represent the bmx lifestyle like that i still think there's so much life in it i, I oh, always dude, how did i forget of... about this the bmx market i, I was talking about how skating and motocross kind of like gobbled up a lot of its appeal scooters yeah. scooters oh, yeah of course dude kids they, used to ride like, bmx what, bikes and years? skateboards so much more than they do now the scooter game changed everything yeah i've been planning to make a video on that because i i've reached out to ryan williams and um we we got we got chatting and it's got me thinking i do think scooters have like fucked up the industry for a lot of uh a lot of different yeah. sports which is cool you know i'm not mad at the scooters but at the same time i mean bro that that it's so much easier like you know my, mm. my kid will be on a scooter when she's you know two three years old probably yeah. and my kid you know it'll take years and years where you know, my kid will probably be able to do a tail whip on a scooter when she's like eight, nine years old, you know, whereas if you want to do a tail whip on a BMX bike, I mean, good luck. Get yeah. get in the fucking gym and hope that you're really fucking good. A tail whip on a yeah. BMX bike is a very hard trick and a tail whip on a scooter is like nothing, you know? Yeah. Like, um, yeah, the other day I was at a skate park. So I've just got into rollerblading since that video. I bought some, but I'd give it a go. And um, some kid recognized me. He was like, oh, it's Jimmy the Giant. Can I do a trick for your video? And I was like, ah, yeah, whatever. And this kid fucking on a scooter. I don't know what the fuck he did. He did like a backflip and a tail whip, landed it, rolled away. I'm like, how, how long have you been doing that? He's like, oh, about a year. This kid's like 10 years old. I was like, what the fuck? So like, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost good that it's kind of easy because the thing with skateboarding even is that the barrier for entry in terms of skill is very high. And so if a sport is easy, but then it can be good and you can get sick at it, then that's almost the perfect recipe. So I wonder, do you, do you think like scooting, scootering will get bigger from here or do you think it's done its main spike? To be honest, I haven't really been paying attention to the health of the scooter world, but I remember like 2015, like that, uh, you know, there was a couple of dudes who would come and, and ride scooters while we were out riding BMX and, we actually were friends with them and we would just let them hang out, which stood out to me a lot as in like, wow, I'm, we're really growing as people right here because back in the day, we never would have dreamed of rolling around with scooter kids, you know, but, <laughs> you know, and they were cool and they would tell the BMX dudes that I had on my team and stuff, they would tell them how much they got paid. And it was like, you know, upsetting to the BMX dudes because um, they'd be like, holy shit, these scooter dudes are making way more money than us. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know exactly where the industry's at right now for scooting, but 
it definitely had a, a, a lot more money coming in last time I paid attention than BMX did. I always wonder if um, video games are, are slightly killing off extreme sports in general, like kids uptaking. Yeah, I do think so. Because it's, it's so it's, easy, you know, like you could, mm. you could literally just sit down and play Fortnite and it's addictive. It's made to yeah. be addictive. And you could be in a trance playing Fortnite for eight hours and, you know, be having a good time, be like, you know, experiencing the illusion. Getting of like, sick you know, of it as well. Like, yeah, and you could probably be pretty good and you could just yeah. boom, you, you run out. It's basically like gambling, you know, and, and then in comparison to BMX or skateboarding, where if you want to be a BMX rider or a skateboarder, you're going to have to go to the skate park and you're going to have to try tricks mm. over and over. And some percentage of the time you're going to fall on your ass and get hurt. I mean, mm. it's pretty easy for me to understand why that doesn't appeal to a lot of it's kids a tough, in comparison it's a tough to video games. Yeah, and, and, and you don't even have to play video games, bro. These days, like, the interest graph of all the different things that you could be into as, like, a 16-year-old, for example. I mm. mean, th there's kids who sit around and just stand KSI 24-7. Like, that's mm. their whole personality. Like, you know, watching Aiden Ross on Twitch is, like, a whole personality for these kids. Yeah, like, yeah. If Aiden Ross is sitting on Twitch with 100,000 people watching him, that's 100,000 people who are not yeah. at the skate park or playing baseball or, or playing fucking football, as y'all would call it, or whatever. You know, like, <laughs> there's just so many things that a kid could choose to do that, like, mm. the popularity of BMX and skateboarding back in the day, you kind of need to be like, well maybe it's just never going to be that big because there's just so many things for kids to choose from, you know? Yeah. Like I, I, um, I don't know how much, or if you're interested in the guy at all, but you know, like Jordan Peterson, who's like that philosopher. Yeah, yeah, geezer, yeah. He has a chapter in his book that's called, um, don't interrupt kids skateboarding or something like that. And I, I've, I saw that bit, and I love that. Yeah. 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 And I really want to explore it a bit more because I, I have this thought about how I think for young men, the reason that you see a lot of young men going into extreme sports is because they need this almost like testing. Like it's like a coming of age. I almost think for a lot of people yeah. that go into an extreme sport at a young age, it's like learning to be a man. And I think that element of um, what extreme sports has done, you know, well, I say extreme sports, parkour has done for me. I really do wonder if this new generation who are now mainly playing video games, are they going to have that same kind of like, I don't know, like the, the war, like the battle to get good at something, as you say, falling your ass all the time to land fucking one trick. Are they yeah. going to have that? And how is that going to affect them? And am I just being an old ass thinking that that's going to be negative? For them, you know what I mean? No, I think the same thing. And also, I think you should do a clickbait of like what Jordan Peterson gets about skateboarding that you don't or some shit. That would oh, be that's a, a sick idea. Yeah, yeah I'm right. But, Definitely but, uh, nicking that idea. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, because I feel like it's just, but, but in a way, maybe the video game upbringing, which is probably presumably going to get worse. You know, everybody's trying to figure mm. out who's going to own the metaverse now, but like, maybe that's makes sense because kids now are going to be expected to, to do less in real life, socializing more of their life is going to be taking place online. So maybe mm. the stuff that you learn from communicating with a bunch of friends of yours in the chat on Fortnite or whatever, maybe that actually will benefit you more than, being out you know doing all the stuff that i did and there are benefits too when i think about all the fucking trouble we got into as a kid mm. riding bmx riding around town all day like 
you know, a kid who sits in his house playing Fortnite, you know, he's, he's not going to get in a fight with some random dude. Like that seemed yeah, like yeah. it would happen to us every other day when we were out riding bikes, you know? So I, feel I, like know. I got it perfect because yeah. I, I was like, I grew up on playing RuneScape and doing parkour. So it was like, mm. you know, I'd spend, I, I, I do honestly accredit RuneScape to a lot of like my business mind and stuff like that, which is weird. And I, I, I do think these younger kids probably will learn shit from video games, but I just feel like, you know, you kind of need the two, don't you? I agree. Yeah. I mean, and I will always probably tell my kid that is like, if you are passionate about something like skateboarding or bike riding or, or gymnastics or whatever, mm-hmm. that's awesome. But you really like, I, I can't have that be your whole thing because you can't base your whole identity on something where if you tear your ACL, then you're mm-hmm. not going to be doing it for a year or two, you know, like that's just, it's too risky. And I've seen too many people like that where their whole life is BMX and then they they tear their ankle and all of a sudden they're a fucking pill head or whatever, you know, it's like, you just have to balance your, your interests. I think, cause you, you, you want stuff that you can do around the house and you want stuff that you can do out being active, you know? Yeah. It's very addictive as well. Like I found parkour was just every single day. I was always thinking about it. And, yeah. and I suppose, cause you do, you do just feel so good for it, but yeah, it's, it's a hard one. But yeah, I do. I do see what you mean. You can't get to. You can't put all your eggs into it because, especially, it's not really a career for most people. Even if you get sick, like I've seen people put fucking shifts into parkour to never make a fucking penny. You know. Yeah. No, I and mean like, same thing with me throughout my life with Kandama and BMX. It's like at a certain point, it just you start to have to try to rationalize it to yourself, and you're like, well. Mm this is a completely absurd thing for me to be spending this much time on, but you know, um, but yeah, I mean, but even if you think of like the most popular sports, you know, basketball is a sport where you can make an absolute shitload of money. But I mean, what are the odds of you being one of the top 300 Mm. uh, uh, basketball players in America who gets to be in the NBA and gets to make a career out of it? Almost none. So, I mean, Mm-hmm. that's the weird thing with kids you got to encourage them to pursue whatever they want to do but then also keep them like tethered to reality of like you know this this might not turn into this you need to be thinking about other stuff as well yeah yeah i you must be in a crazy time now having a kid because it's like how old they must be what two one or two years one one years old so i suppose you're in this thing of like kind of thinking what how you're going to treat them when they're like 13 14 because that's the shit i would be thinking about because right now oh, it's yeah. probably like this nice period, but there's going to be a time where they have to like become, start becoming an adult kind of thing. That's the bit that's scary, I think. Yeah, and it's like, you know, like I could teach her how to be an influencer. I could teach her how to make a good living as an influencer that's probably like a guaranteed living as like a kid who's going to have like a certain number of eyeballs on her like if she wants. But I mean, I, I don't want to like my kid to just think that mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and that's the weird thing is like you want to like teach them to, you know, go to school and try to become a lawyer. But then at the same time, you're thinking like she's going to want to be a YouTuber, <laughs> you know, mm. she's going to want to be a Twitch streamer. Like you're going to mm. have to balance teaching her about like, you know, a real serious career and and teaching her about, you know, how the world actually works now. You know, are you worried about when they grow up and, you know, you've obviously dealt with like people hating on you and all that stuff are you ever going to be do you think you'd be worried about that i mean i would say i've uh i've thought about it but i'm not really like that worried about it i feel like at the end of the day like 
if how you raise your kid, like if, if you leave enough room for doubt that your kid is like maybe going to hate you one day because of like, you know, you, you fuck their mom on the internet or whatever. It's like, <laughs> if that's going to like be so devastating, then I feel like I kind of fucked up because at some point I got to like, you know, explain to my kid, Hey, like you realize mommy and daddy do stuff on the internet. Yeah. But also like by the time that she's like old enough to comprehend that, I would think maybe I wouldn't be doing that. So maybe i don't know i've always wondered day. that i've never i've never mm -hmm. spoke to anyone who's done adult work so i've always had that question what will it be like when your kid finds it, it must be it, horrible it's like the time. kind of thing that i used to think would would be the biggest deal in the world and now it's hard for me to even comprehend like even thinking about it because that i'm so disillusioned to that like that's just so normal you're to in me that at this world point. deep you're deep in that world so you like see it all the time you know yeah. the people it's it's like it's a job yeah and we uh we manage girls now which is mm. like quickly making the no jumper part of my business seem like a, you know, a non-profit uh because it's just like you can make so much money by helping manage these girls and you know i don't feel like we're doing anything bad like they could do whatever the fuck they want on OnlyFans. we're just helping to promote them and mm. you know yeah they're selling sex or whatever but like the first girl that we signed, we took her, she was making $3,000 a month on OnlyFans and we took her to 150,000 in her first month. Fuck me. And it's like, you know, th there's nobody who could convince me that the business I'm in is bad, really. It's like, mm. you know, she, she could do whatever she wants in there. She's hooking up with her boyfriend and filming little videos. It's like, you know, it's you just gotta raise than... a kid that's not gonna be sensitive enough to care, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think because I'm nearing 30, I think more and more about when I'll eventually be a dad. It's something I yeah. think about. It's one of the ones, I, it's definitely just your brain changes and you start just thinking about it and you don't even, you know, there would have been a time where I never thought I'd be a dad. And it's like something I'm now actually excited for. Weird. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. All right, I'm just going to go through a few more here. So, um, yeah, so I've got it here. We, we just talked about like 98, 99. So there was a video called Props Road Falls 1. Is that mm -hmm. it? Yeah, so that apparently created like a load of icons for like BMX. Can you think of who those guys were? Uh, there was, I forget exactly who was on Road Fools 1. There's got to be a list somewhere online. I know that like Brian Castillo was on it, uh, Joe Rich and Taj Mahalik and all those guys, I think. But Jimmy Levan. But that that era, yeah, that was incredible. Props, Road Fools, Props itself was like a bi-monthly video magazine type thing where you would get a, a VHS tape in the mail every every two months or something. And it would have like, you know, a half hour. It was like 411 for skating where it would be like a half hour or so of video Ooh. content before uh, YouTube came out and took that business model away from them. But uh, Road Fools in particular was like they would just do a road trip seven days 10 days whatever it was and they would bring all these big pros and then they would include a ton of lifestyle which was amazing at the time because you really get to see what these people were like personality wise and mm. uh yeah i mean that's a big thing that bmx has kind of cha been challenged with since the internet age is that there used to be such a good process by which you would sort of turn these bmx pros into heroes you know they would get video parts they would get the cover of a magazine, shit like that. They would go on Road Fools. Everybody would get to see their personality. All of a sudden, it makes sense hmm. to sponsor them. In the YouTube era, in the Instagram clip era, it's like there's so much less context. It was so, it's, so, it's so much more like 
the, the riders that people just sort of naturally gravitate towards become the ones with a lot of followers, as opposed to back then, the mm. industry was sort of like creating these pros, you know? Mm. So it, mo it moves the, um, yeah, kind of like the power into the individual's hands, but then that individual isn't possibly making the bikes. So the industry probably struggles from that, as opposed to if they were in control of being the tastemakers, then they're the ones being able to sell their bike for it or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I say this as I'm the person who basically like figured out that you didn't need magazines in BMX um, in the sense that I started a blog and kind of like made magazines seem obsolete before anybody else. And, mm. you know, I was, I was always shouting that from the mountaintops of like, you know, like magazines suck, they're pointless. They're fucking scamming their advertisers by charging this month because there's no way that that many people are seeing these things, et cetera. I basically like pissed off the whole industry by saying that kind of shit. And uh, the truth was, is that those magazines and stuff, even though they were quickly becoming irrelevant, they did like serve an important purpose because once I came out, it was like, I'm running this blog and I'm, I'm giving you everything that is going on in BMX, but there's like no process by which you really like make these guys seem important. Like BMX media, mm. I think that was a big part of why BMX was so popular and why like an older crowd would stay into it longer was because the magazines and the DVDs and everything did such a good job of presenting the mx for what it really is which is like a bunch of 16 year olds at the skate park with helmets on probably as opposed to like when it was the dvd era and the magazine era you have like the elder statesman in bmx mm. determining what stuff gets attention so it's kind of like it's more cool it's more adult and then like once the internet took over it's like that kind of it, it, it kind of killed that inherent sexiness that the media was like infusing into bmx because now you've got, you know, just regular ass kids posting Instagram clips. There's no yeah. like shared, like, like all those BMX magazines from, you know, 2003. I mean, me and everyone else who wrote BMX at that time had those magazines. Like we were all looking at the same shit. And now mm. it's like, you know, everybody's kind of following different Instagram accounts and people are getting famous in different ways. And it, it really changed the game a lot. It's like they, they would have carried a prestigiousness. So like having, it's like getting on the front cover of fucking Vogue or something like that almost. 100% where, you know, the BMX media was able to sort of portray BMX as being cooler than maybe it really was. And once, mm, once it yeah. became more like, oh, here's, here's like a, a feed of YouTube videos of all these kids, it sort of made everything kind of like uh, blown out and, and, and it just didn't seem as cool. And I, I was a huge yeah. part of that because I, I just believed BMX people want this content I'm going to put it on this fucking blog and people are just going to take it and you know in retrospect it did kind of like change the culture of it a lot I understand why so many people thought that I was destroying BMX at the time even though usually their reasoning would be like because of the anonymous comments they would think that I was a dickhead or whatever so parkour has gone to this thing now where people are doing um paid for films because we had the exact same thing where it's like fucking you could just watch instagram and you'd see all the best shit so there was no like back in the day you would have a video drop and you you would have kids like that was their song on their phone for the next like year that they were always banging and it was like you would say jokes that they would say in these videos and then 
the content got so saturated that you'd have none of that. You lost the culture. And so people yeah. have gone back to now releasing like films as a pay pay-per-view. Has BMX done that in any way? Uh, they've tried a little bit. I feel like the BMX industry hasn't really, uh, the fans haven't really like shown that much of a willingness to like spend money on content, you know? And, mm. and really what happened that's kind of crazy is that, you know, it went from everybody filming DVDs to everybody filming for YouTube videos to then Instagram comes along and Instagram starts to become so convenient that now if you have like an 18 year old kid that loves BMX or a 16 year old kid or whatever, he's probably not thinking about filming with a real camera to film a no. BMX video because it's so easy to just film clips on your iPhone. So then like, I remember when I was uh, running the BMX site, a lot of times I would have to post 20 videos a day. And then all of a sudden it became, you know, like now I look at the BMX websites and they're posting maybe like one or two things a day because mm -hmm. so many of those kids that were filming like full length videos for YouTube or even, you know, two, three minute length videos are just, putting all that shit on their on their instagram you know yeah i mean because if you make that video and it gets between you know if it gets five thousand views had you put each clip on instagram in total you'd have got maybe a hundred odd thousand views even as a small person like yeah and the kids want to grow their instagram these days they realize yeah. the value in building up their social media so they realize like oh i could do 30 tricks put it to a cool song put it on youtube and get you know two thousand views or whatever the fuck they're gonna get or i could film those clips individually with my iphone never have to bring a camera with me anywhere and mm. get more views on each one and potentially grow my instagram i mean that just seems way easier for a kid to comprehend you know it's it's a shame because it in the long term it does devalue it but in that short moment you yeah. do think that it's better like that's how when i had a brand for parkour i, I always did that it was like we we're just uploading to instagram i literally sat my mates down i was like look we need to stop doing these videos because we're fucking we get 10 10 times the views on Instagram. Um, yeah. I wanted to quickly ask, and who were some of those corporate sponsors? You were saying like there was big corporate sponsors back in like early 2000s that were on it. It's like Nike, you said a couple yeah. others. All the shoe companies were really significant just in terms of like, uh, you, you know, you had, uh, shit, you had, you know, Osiris had a team for a period oh. of time and uh, Shit, I'm having a hard time thinking of what all the uh, DC, you know, DC dropped out of BMX in 2009 or some shit when they were actually just about to sign a big contract with uh, my company at that time. They hmm. left the game. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the shoe companies were big. I mean, the, the, the energy drink companies have been relatively consistent with BMX. They've kind of like downsized their involvement a little bit, but Red Bull and Monster have definitely been helping to keep a lot of pros on their feet over the years. Um, but for a while, you know, you would have, you know, more like random clothing sponsors and just all these kind of different companies, you know, you'd see BMX riders getting deals with like Honda and shit like that. Like I remember Dave Mira had, had a, a Slim Jim sticker right here on his helmet. And the, the rumor in the industry was always that he got paid a million dollars a year for the Slim Jim logo on his helmet. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's probably more I could think of too, but yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember when, do you, do you remember 1-800-COLLECT? Uh, I recognize that. It's, I think that's an American thing, but I think I've Yeah, it probably it. was. It was just like a, a way to collect call people where it was, was basically just the technology where you would call someone and 
they oh would, yeah. yeah 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 they yeah. would pay for the charges but i remember there being yeah. bmx riders who would get paid to have a 1-800 collect logo on their fucking helmet for a year <laughs> and that just you know at a certain point it's like if you're 1-800 if you're a, a company who sells some phone type service or whatever yeah. are you gonna go buy ads on youtube on facebook on instagram slash like you know maybe you'll you'll go get some different influencers to help you out but you're definitely not going to start a BMX team and promise I, them a steady paycheck for the next couple of years, right? I, ne- I never understood corporate sponsors for shit like that. Because is someone going to watch you BMX, look at your helmet and go, fuck me, I need a Honda. That's what I need. You're never going to look at that helmet and be influenced to buy something. I never got but that. It does, it does create familiarity in the long run of like, you know, if I see a, you know, as, as a kid, I was a big doubter of advertising, but now I like, mm. I get it. Like, there's so many things that like I know about because I've heard about them on podcast ads, even if I have no interest in it, I know all about it. Cause I heard about it, you know, just <laughs> That's a good getting point. that sliver of mind share, you know, in particular, mm. when you're, when they're doing something that you really want to be associated with, like, you know, if Dave Mira wins the X games, rest in peace, but if he had won the X games with a fucking Slim Jim sticker right there, you're sitting there watching him win the Olympics. You're thinking this is or X games. You're thinking this is greatness in sports. And also a part of your brain is like, brought oh, to you by Slim Jim. Slim Jim. Okay. Yeah. You know, even yeah, if yeah, you don't yeah. consider yourself the kind of person that really wants to eat a Slim Jim, it's still there in your <laughs> consciousness, you know? Yeah, it is true. I just, it's a weird one. It's like passive marketing. I think it's like, you're not thinking you're going to get the purchase there, but maybe down the line you might get it or something. Yeah. Um, and, and- Big, big brands over time, they, once you get big enough, that passive type marketing of like buying billboards and buying, you know, mm. advertising on different athletes and stuff, that shit just becomes I, more and more relevant the bigger you get. Yeah. I think it's the same for sponsored shoutouts on YouTube. Cause a lot of the time, like some, some of the money people pay me to shout out some shit and I'm like, I know you ain't getting that return. I, I know that they must just be doing it for the uh, constant in your ear. Like you always hear Raid Shadow Legends. It's like, I mean, I've heard 50 fucking Raid Shadow Legends ads, but now guess what? I am not ever going to be able to forget what Raid Shadow Legends is, even though I have no interest in playing it and mm, have done mm. the ads myself and still never played it. Yeah. No, yeah. So <laughs> I played it for two minutes and I was like, oh, no, fuck that. Um, so, okay. All right. So then the 2000s, so you were sort of saying 2000s is like the, the hot, like that's where it's popping. And then I've read that sort of the decline some people theorize it was sort of like 2012 2013 because there was a video that come out and i'm literally just quoting a fucking image this image might be bullshit but a video come out around 2016 called deadline and a lot of people herald herald that was like that was a sick video but not a ton has happened since is that accurate um i mean i i wouldn't probably use that as like such a distinct point of marking a change in the industry but no. that was a, that. So that dude, Garrett Reynolds that we're talking about, he, that's his, uh, that was his company at the time before he started fiend. And okay. it was like, it was a really big deal that people were waiting years and years and years to see this video. And it was like, they filmed so much insanely progressive stuff, but they just took their sweet ass time putting it out. And then it finally came out, blew everybody's minds. I, I wouldn't say that like the BMX industry, like slowed down that much since then, but that definitely mm. was kind of like, stands out as sort of like the end of a, a certain era of like dvds being such a priority in bmx for sure i could see that um well, that was that, a dvd that was, release yeah that was definitely one of the biggest ones of that era and there, there might not have been a bigger one since to be 
Hmm. Yeah, that might be fair. Yeah. And the, and they were also saying the same image. They were saying like, um, so around 2010s, a lot of riders were getting paid a lot. Some people were getting complacent with their sponsor. This was where like, that Mike Spinner thing come in because it showed that Mike Spinner, uh, Mike Spinner bought some fucking massive house. And they were sort of saying that people were kind of maybe getting a little bit carried away with the money, thinking it was going to stay. I don't know if I'm chatting up my ass again. But then they were saying um, 2012 BMX industry over forecasted and then many businesses closed. So what did that, do you know what that means? Yeah, like when I was saying the thing about the the complete bikes and how all these companies ordered way too many of them and everything, and then that basically ended up with a ton of companies with a ton of stock that they couldn't sell, and they basically had to like sell it at cheaper prices and everything. And then when I was talking about that mail order dance comp, they were so massive. They sponsored a huge team. They did tons of advertising. They would slash the prices down on stuff like crazy. Use use super aggressive discount codes. Basically, like just did all this stuff to basically be Amazon and drive the price down uh, on on stuff so that they could really control the market. And they actually had bought so much stuff. I'm not sure if this happened in 2012. I think it might have been a couple of years later. But Dan's comp actually went went bankrupt. And uh, that was a massive blow for BMX because all of a sudden you have like 10 plus people who are on the team that aren't getting paid. And, you know, this this was a, a, a big driver of people getting their stuff. Like Dan's Comp was the company that had everybody's mailing address so that they would send you catalogs. And that would be, you know, every kid growing up in my era, you got your Dan's Comp catalog and you sat around and you daydreamed about buying all the parts in there, you know? And uh, when they went bankrupt, that was a, a big sign that things weren't going well. And even I'll throw another one in there. There's a there, my whole life growing up, there's a company called Ride BMX. And that was the biggest uh, magazine that, you know, and me running my own website and everything. We were very much uh, opponents uh, battling for market share. But then one day and it was owned by, I think, Transworld, or at this point, it might have been owned by a different uh, massive media company. But one day they showed up for work, and I forget what date this was, but it might have been 2018, 2019. They show up for work, the doors are locked, they can't log into their emails, they can't log onto the server for the site. And, you know, the company that owned the content wasn't willing to give the the employees any of the photos that they had taken and everything all their archives what? everything in the office was taken so you have the biggest bmx magazine frozen in time for a, for a long time you would go to ridebmx.com and you would see like oh there's six month old posts on the page or whatever now i'm pretty sure you go to it and it's it, it forwards you to menshealth.com or some shit what yeah That's because it just it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't making them any money anymore. And to the corporate overlords, they're mm. thinking this is worth more to us as a brand name that has nothing going on than giving away some of the IP to these people who own the company that want to get that it. Is, you know? That is insane. That's insane. Yeah, You're saying that, that's I mean, 2018, sort of around then. Yeah, it was around then. I forget what year, but they, they so the dudes who were running that they split off and they they basically started their own thing called Our BMX as an O U R BMX dot com, and that's cool. Like you know, that's kind of like the the new version of that with a lot of the same guys who work there and everything. But obviously, they lost a ton of their corporate advertising or any kind of like mainstream advertising. There, God, that that was such a massive death blow to the the print slash media world mm. right there that it's hard to even overstate it and even my website bro like 
about a year ago or two years ago we just pulled the plug like it just wasn't making any money the the fucking you know it didn't seem like anybody cared i could barely even find employees who wanted to run the site because there just wasn't like enthusiasm for bmx websites at a certain point like mm. i, I kind of like made the bmx magazines and dvds irrelevant by running a really really good website and then all of a sudden one day i realized like oh people don't need a website anymore like social mm. media took over all that you know fucking hell so how is it doing now like on on some shit is it still like how if you were to sort of maybe draw a curve of how well it was doing over the time I mean, we probably do better now because we just make clothes and then sort of like sell them to the no jumper fan base. Realistically, mm. like definitely some BMX dudes do it. And we, we do BMX videos still like we do road trips. We have a team uh, and we, we do we still do stuff. So from from my perspective, it's it's not the worst position to be in because we're kind of like one of the more well-known BMX brands that sort of that's what the image of the brand is rooted in. But then at the same mm. time, we can sell those clothes to rappers and, and skater kids and, and, you know, random YouTube kids who just want to watch interviews and shit like that. So, you know, from my perspective, running on some shit, it's, it's not in a terrible place, although it's, you know, definitely a, a tiny, tiny percentage of what we do with no jumper. But mm. yeah, I mean, I, I still feel like the industry, there are a bunch of dope brands. There's still a ton of kids who are making videos and stuff. Like, you know, I, I could still point you, like, I have a video queued up that I'm going to watch right after we get off the phone with a guy named Michael Smelko, who I used to ride with back in the day in Europe and stuff. And he's, he's amazing. And there's still so many people who are really doing incredible stuff that I don't want to like paint the picture that BMX is like really dead. It's just, mm, it's been, the, the business of it has slowed down a lot. Yeah. Mm. Do you ever feel like a little bit, I don't know if sad's the word, but do you ever feel a little bit melancholy from seeing how it was when you were really getting into it to it now being smaller? I do because, you know, when I was a kid, it just seemed kind of like more vibrant, more exciting, more like there was just constantly like interesting shit going on. And, you know, a lot of that has just kind of been lost because of the, the change in like how we consume media, you know, where stuff is, mm. I can say the same thing about rap. I used to wait every month to get the source or double xl to read about rap now i open my phone and i get everything from instagram and twitter in five minutes but yeah mm. i mean it, it it definitely does kind of stink and, and it, it kind of sucks because like if you're a skateboarder and you spend your whole life skateboarding you could kind of like talk about chad muska or like you know you could talk about danny way you could talk about you know rodney mullen all these people that like kind of still makes sense to like more of a mainstream audience whereas like my brain is full of you know who invented this trick on a bmx bike in 1999 and nobody cares <laughs> like it's just not yeah, really yeah. like it's just so much less and i'm sure you probably kind of feel the same way with parkour and mm. inline and, and shit like that where it's like it kind of sucks to see over time something that meant the absolute world to you you, you mm. sort of realize that you're part of a pretty small minority who feel that way yeah. and over time it's probably going to become a smaller and smaller percentage I, honestly i think the most depressing thing was seeing people i saw as fucking gods end up just not really doing anything serious with their life yeah 100 like like i see people people i literally looked up to just becoming like you know alkies drug addicts and i'm just like oh fuck man and i'd meet them and um, I literally lent someone, someone I looked up to so much when I was really young. He rung me late at night, 
needing to pick up some I, I it might have just been weed or something like to lend him like 20 quid and I was like fuck like you know that's sad yeah no you figure that out pretty quick where like all these people seem like gods to you and then you get a little bit older and usually you don't have to get that old like even Kandama I mean same thing like I see how like Kandama is an interesting example because it's something where nobody has ever made a living at it like past mm. or present like there there are like maybe like two dudes three dudes i think one of the dudes we sponsor is like one of the only people who makes a living off of kendama you know and uh yeah i mean that like you look at that and you're like well why would anybody devote their life to it when it's going to be a part-time hustle no matter what mm. you know? bro i don't want to take up too much more of your time because i appreciate you're a busy man but yeah, got, I mean, I definitely got, am enjoying talking. Maybe we could just do this again some night yeah. in the future. If let's just trade numbers on Instagram because I'm definitely down to like answer more questions. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been sick. I, I do want to just um, you were saying with the completes just because it gives me something I can Google and look into. Um, the completes. When did they start popping up? Because they they seem like the the thing that kind of changed the industry a little bit in, in terms I, of like, i remember it as being maybe 2007 2008 was okay. when that really and like fit fit and snm were uh, or excuse me fit was so like the biggest bmx company my whole childhood the coolest like rider owned company was always snm it's owned by this guy chris moeller who, who uh still owns it to this day but they were american made so that that's a huge issue where American made bikes, it's like almost impossible for you to really make a business out of it because they're so much more expensive to make. But SM mm. always did that. Then at a certain point, Chris Moeller realizes that maybe there's not as much of a future in doing the American made bikes. So he, he starts another company called Fit and they start making frames and everything overseas. But then they figured out the complete bike thing kind of like before everybody else. And for like a year or two, they were making so much money because they basically had like a monopoly on selling these high quality complete bikes. But the way the BMX industry has always been in terms of their relationship with these factories in China is like somebody figures out something that works and it starts selling the factories yeah, just yeah. allow everybody else to bootleg it. It's like, you don't really have like much of a window where mm. anything could be exclusive, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's weird that, cause that is definitely what China is like. Cause with clothing, you, you probably know this, but with clothing, it's like, especially in Europe, you have to be almost invited to go to certain warehouses. If you want to go yeah. to a warehouse where they make good quality clothes in Europe, you you will have to know someone. You don't just find it on Google. 100%, yeah. And then just so I'm making sure I understand, and then the completes, what that did was basically fuck up the market in terms of like, you know, people having to buy parts, which obviously if someone's spending 300 pounds on a bike versus 1000 odd, and then they got to keep keeping it, you know, the market is, they're now making less and less money as a manufacturer. Exactly. Because like all of a sudden the average consumer is kind of like spending less on their BMX pastime, you know, mm. but then at the same time, it opened the market up more where it's like, okay, there's more kids who can get involved because it's less expensive yeah. and stuff now. But ultimately I feel like, yeah, it just kind of made the industry less wealthy so that there was like less money coming in maybe in the long run. And especially like in the short run, it might've seemed like, oh, we're making a ton of money from these completes. But once the market had way too many completes and the mm. price starts getting down, then it's like, we spent so much money on these bikes that we can all probably acknowledge are kind of like driving down the overall profits of the industry. But now we're mm. basically forced to sell those bikes 
at break even or maybe even a loss or they're just going to sit in a warehouse forever because Fuck. there's just no uh the, 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 the all of a sudden the business was all fucked up but they had way too much of it well it's, it's they always talk about with business you want to have a subscription model i mean you guys doing the patreon it's kind of the same thing you want a subscription model so you know that you've got x amount coming in every month so that's why having people knowing that they're going to have to get new parts is great for a business because they can plan whereas if it's you buy a bike and you're kind of good that's just so shit you're not going to be able to plan long term for that and I mean, the, the industry got so fucked up, too, because people would start competing on on allowing returns or like allowing uh, manufacturer claims, as in like, I broke this bike and I'm pissed off that I, I spent 300 bucks on this frame and it broke. So I'm going to actually mail it back to the company and they're going to no mail way. me another one for cheap or free. That started to be expected in the industry, which is so insane when you really That's think about it, up. because- you literally buy a bike. The whole point of it is to jump off some tall shit or hit a dirt jump or grind something. And then you're going to return it when it breaks. Like it was just a terrible precedent, but then you have one company claim that they're going to do that. And then you have every other company basically has to scramble to, to provide the same customer service. Like you saw yeah, all these yeah. companies, all these companies really basically like sabotaging each other. They all did it to each other. It's, that's why in a lot of ways, it's kind of hard for me to feel bad for a lot of these brands that went on. Yeah. It just you know? seems like poor business. Like that's, that's so weird. You'd think these people would know. I don't know. I always think this with business. You would think people are a bit more like this is their profession to be a businessman. But then so often they just completely like let a market down. Like what you're kind of explaining here really is a failure yeah, and, of business. And, and even like, I'm not sure exactly what the profit margins are for skate shops, but you know, when you were selling something out of a, out of a BMX shop, you would be making like a very, very small, uh, amount of money for everything that you sell. I don't even want to say that it was like a 15 or 20% markup, but you know, a lot of stuff that people sell, they're selling for a hundred percent markup. You know, you, you buy a shirt for like $20 and you sell it for $40. That sounds normal. But in BMX, you're like, you know, buying a frame for $300 and then selling it on the shelf in your store for like $345 or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's Ken cool, Dahmer's but... going to make more money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, that just became... But when you think about it, like if these companies had all come together and said, uh, and said, okay, we're going to charge a higher markup. We're not going to do these refunds, et cetera. Then the industry could have been a lot healthier, mm. but you know, it was just, they were too competitive. Well, I got to uh, yeah, yeah. Well, run, but yeah, yeah. let's definitely do this again. Well, I'll do. I'm going to like make notes kind of put a bit of structure together and then i'll find what i need to know and i'll ask you some more questions if that's cool let's do it because this is super fun for me to talk about <laughs> awesome man it's been great to chat to you honestly you're quite an idol of mine so it's been pretty amazing chatting oh yeah my pleasure man i'm a big fan of what you're doing keep it going man appreciate it bro have a good day much love g